Welcome to the Pactum. This is Pat Abendroth, and on today's episode, we are doing a Pactum Responsum, which means we're answering your good questions. I'm not just saying they're good questions either. They actually are really good questions. Lots of them dealing with different topics, but lots of them dealing with law and gospel issues, which makes my heart glad because it means we're, we're making progress. So many people are understanding the difference between law and gospel, not blurring them, seeing them both as important in the way they understand the Bible, read the Bible, teach the Bible, preach the Bible. It is wonderful. It is for the glory of Christ. So if you submitted a question, I may get to it today. We'll do another one of these soon because we have so many questions. And if you've not submitted a question, you can go to our website, thepactum.org. We're happy to receive so many questions. In addition, if you've not submitted a question, keep listening because you can listen to the questions and maybe you can answer the questions before I do or push pause, or maybe you can answer them better than I can. I'm without my Grimes today, so it is another Lone Ranger edition. A fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty Hyo Silver. The Lone Ranger. In addition to it being a Lone Ranger edition, it's also an on-the-road edition. I guess I, I'm actually recording in an apartment today, uh, out of state, so I guess these are the apartment diaries or something like that. Our first question today comes from Brandon. He says, hello brothers, I've come to the realization that you guys read a lot of books, and I was wondering what your opinion was on Manly Dominion by Mark Chansky and on Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Don Whitney. Thanks for your time. Well, Brandon, in response, uh, we try to read books, but we don't read as many as we used to, if we're honest. But having said that, Manly Dominion is a book I've not read. Uh, Mike's not read it either. And so we really can't comment on it. So I did look up the book, read some reviews. Mark Chansky is a pastor of a Reformed Baptist church, I think in Michigan. So Mark, if you're a listener, you can, you can reach out to us and we'd love to get to know more about your book. I will say something as an aside, and I'm not accusing Mark Chansky of this, but just as a heads up, Brandon, it's popular uh, today for many people to talk about dominion and having dominion and the dominion mandate to confuse things just a little bit. Once again, a second qualifier. I'm not saying that uh, Mark Chansky does this, but oftentimes, and it is popular, people confuse the dominion mandate with something that we must do as Adam did. And that's a foul. That's, that's a theological mistake. Realize that Adam had the dominion mandate, and he was to lead the human race into eternal life so that we would be justified. And he, we know, failed. And it, it is the Lord Jesus Christ that fulfilled the dominion mandate. And so we're not trying to do this in order to gain acceptance from God. Uh, so we what theologians will say, I think like David Van Drunen, we still have the dominion mandated, but mandate, but it's refracted. It's different because we're in Christ. We're not doing it in the same sense that Adam would have or Jesus did. So keep that in mind. Uh, regarding the second book by Don Whitney, I've read it at least twice. I had to read it the first time uh, for a discipleship lab during seminary. I benefited from it. It helped me. I was thankful for the structure. I've met Don Whitney before. We've hosted him at our church, and I think he's a godly man, and I appreciate much of what he has done. With that said, I've grown to be, oh, somewhat suspicious, somewhat skeptical of the spiritual disciplines movement because there's lots of good, but there also is some bad snuck in. 
And I think it relates to pietism. Now, piety comes, it's the word for godly. So we want to be godly. We want to be all about piety, the holiness, living in holiness, doing what the Lord requires of his children. If we're in Christ, we want to do the right thing. We want to pray. We want to read our Bibles and meditate upon the scriptures and, and those kinds of things. But it's important that we remember that some of the things that get smuggled in through the back door, so to speak, are extra biblical things. Maybe they're preferences or worse, maybe some folks, I'm not accusing Don Whitney of this, but some folks say, you know, the reformers, they had a lot of things figured out when it comes to justification, but they didn't understand spiritual living. They didn't understand piety. So we need to maybe reach out to the mystics, maybe reach out to the Roman Catholics and learn how to do godly living from them. And that's a mistake. Uh, that's definitely a mistake. Here on the Pactum, we believe that the recovery that happened with the Protestant Reformation and following was not only regarding justification, but it's also regarding sanctification. It's also regarding godly living. So it has to do with piety also. So we need not venture outside of our tradition. You may want to listen to episode 16, I think it is, of the Pactum called Ordinary Means. That's an important one as well. So when someone says you, you need to commit to the spiritual discipline of fasting, I think you should at least seek the scriptures to see whether that is so. There's fasting in the scripture, certainly mandated in the old covenant. But what about in the new covenant? Is it mandated? Is it prescribed? Should it be once a month? Should it be once a week? Should it be once a year? Or is it something that might simply happen because of a crisis or because of uh, a particular unique kind of scenario? And I would lean toward the latter more so. So I, I don't promote that book any longer, even though there are some really good things in there. So there's a heads up on that. I think you can read the book and gain, you can profit from it. Uh, but just as a, a little bit of a caution, in addition, and I've already alluded to this, as you think through these matters, Brandon, consider the fact that what might work good for you and you might find it to be helpful when you're praying to write things down because it helps you to be focused or something like that. It doesn't mean it's a good idea to then prescribe it to other people. So you have to be careful. I might say, you know what? Uh, there's a season in my life when I was really distracted and I wanted to pray. So I liked having a, like a journal book or a journal and I could write things down and I found it to be helpful. But I would want to be cautious to mandate that for other people because there have been Christians who've been very godly, certainly more godly than I am, who've not had access to such things. Okay, next question from Dimitri. Dimitri says, my father-in-law, who is a devoted pastor and very much a biblicist, recently started, uh, recently started being fascinated with a dangerous idea. He talks a lot about God emptying himself, Philippians chapter 2, not by just taking on a human nature, but by laying down his godly attributes. Oh, indeed, Dimitri, this is dangerous that he would become a perfect example for us. Though he remained God in essence, he had no godly attributes and lived a life by the power of the Spirit just as we are called to. Dimitri then says, I know I have to show him the danger of his teaching, but realize that I need to educate myself more before doing that. Indeed, dangerous. Indeed, hopefully you'll reach out and try to help your father-in-law. Uh, you can check out our episode on Biblicism. I think it was one of the very first episodes when we don't want to, we just want to use the Bible in the name of the sufficiency of the Bible. 
which sounds good, but we don't want to pay attention to historical theology. We don't want to pay attention to the blood, sweat, and tears that have been shed by other men and women before us, where they've had to think through these kinds of issues in light of all that the Bible teaches. And so that's biblicism. It's not a good idea. It's not a good take. Uh, it's a refusal to allow the Bible's data to be categorized, to be organized in such a way that we can uh, not contradict what the Bible says in other places. So keep that in mind. And what I would say to you is a couple of good resources, because I think you even referenced it um, on our episode on discernment when my brother Mike Abendroth of No Compromise and I were speaking about this. We talked about that book by Wellam that is quite helpful dealing with the person of Christ. It's a small book. It's, I won't say it's easy to read, but it, it's got like a, it's really helpful. You don't have to read the whole thing. You can just look up kenosis or something like that. And you can start learning about the issues surrounding that particular area. And I think they also have, I think there's also like a glossary in the back. I really enjoyed that book, found it to be helpful, and I would commend that book to you. Having said that, uh, also the, the person of Christ in her, in, and introduction, that, that whole series so far seems to be really good. With that said, uh, maybe this helps too. I'm, I'm not the biggest Wellam fan in the world. And uh, if you're listening, Dr. Wellam, no offense to you. We just come from a different place when it comes to covenant theology. And so I've not been a big proponent of, of new covenant theology or certain things that uh, Mr. Wellam has said about covenant theology. And so I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of this particular book, but it's not because somehow I'm enamored with Mr. Wellam. So check that out. I think it'll be helpful. And I would encourage you not to try to read the whole book. I would just look at the relevant sections and then I think you'll want to read the whole book. And maybe for clarity's sake, before we go there, if the Lord Jesus set aside any of his attributes for a half of a half of a half of a millisecond, then he's not God. He's not God because God, by definition, even according to a biblicist, God, by definition, does not change. And so the Lord Jesus Christ didn't empty himself of all but love as the song goes. Uh, sometimes songs teach us heresy. No, indeed, he did not do that. And so we have to be careful. He was, he was God in every way that it's possible to be God uh, throughout his time here on earth. He did humble himself, but he did it in a way other than getting rid of or setting aside divine attributes. Okay, next question is from Josh. Josh says, uh, I just listened to the latest episode with Pat and Mike Abendroth. Well, thank you. Toward the end of the episode, Doug Wilson was being called out for being in the wrong. And he go, Josh goes on to say that he wished we would have said why we called him out. It was kind of in passing. I think we mentioned Vody Bauckham, and we were concerned why is he speaking at a, a conference at Doug Wilson's church put on by Doug Wilson. And we thought that is a compromise, and it's not a good look, and it's confusing at best. What is Vody Bauckham thinking? Who we would otherwise respect. Well, Doug Wilson uh, has been associated, uh, infamously so, with the Federal Vision Movement. And so if you want to look into that, there's, there's your answer, Josh. Uh, it's because of things like Federal Vision. And Doug Wilson is a good wordsmith. He's a good debater. He's a good talker. He's 
provocative in those ways, and we can appreciate that, but it makes him also dangerous. So he might say, well, no, I don't promote federal vision. Well, he has in the past, and he's certainly given shade to people who do, and federal vision has been associated with things like denying justification by grace alone through faith alone and the finished work of Christ alone. And somehow it has to do with faithfulness and somehow it has to do with, you know, you can gain your initial justification by faith and, or even baptism, how about that? You can, then you can lose your justification. And Doug Wilson might not affirm all of these things today, but he most absolutely certainly has been associated with those who do. And so to the point where whole denominations have said that the federal vision is outside of the boundaries of orthodoxy. So we're not just the ones saying this. That's the reason for the concern. There are other issues as well, other scandalous kinds of issues that have been associated with him. There's other things that he's said and written that are perverse, that Christians ought not be writing. Uh, unfortunately, oftentimes young men are drawn to Doug Wilson because of his pronounced sort of masculinity. And yes, we are, we, we're not big fans of feminism, but we don't think an overreaction is appropriate. So there are whole, I think, websites and Twitter handles, you know, committed to critiquing Moscow theology and Doug Wilson. And so we're not going to do that here. Maybe what you could do is you could go to the Heidel blog and look up Federal Vision. You could look up Doug Wilson and you will find all kinds of things that you wouldn't want to be associated with. So there's that. I hope it helps you. Thank you for listening to the Pactum today. This is what we call a Pactum Responsum. And on the Pactum, if you're just joining us, we like to make up words sometimes because it keeps things interesting. It creates a little bit of a culture. So we say Pactum Responsum, not because it's a real word, but because the Pactum is Latin for covenant. And uh, the Pactum Responsum sounds good because it sounds like we're responding. And we are. This is like mailbag. We're responding to listener questions. We have more and more all of the time. We're thankful for them. They're really good and insightful questions. I wonder how you would answer this next question, dear Pactum listener. It is from Joshua. Imagine, if you will. Oh, it sounds good already. He's gonna get, he's he's creating the, the the fictional setting here. Good job, Joshua. Imagine, if you will, that you both, meaning Mike Grimes and myself, uh, that you both were called to a congregation other than OBC, Omaha Bible Church, where we are, that has never had any interaction with classical Reformed theology or its many features. In addition to the pulpit, how would you go about patiently and effectively educating this congregation if they were supportive and eager to learn? And he has another part of his question, but so far the question is great, and I'm going to start there. What would we do? Well, in a certain sense, Joshua, it's what we have done because Omaha Bible Church comes out of uh, a more of a brethren kind of background. John Nelson Darby, uh, no fans in the least of classic covenant theology or reformed theology, rather hostile toward it. And so uh, it's been our, oh, I can't say the word journey because we don't do that on the Pactum. <laughs> but it has been our adventure. It has been our quest. It has been our history. How about that? To go from one place to another. And so what I would say is, the first thing I would do is I would continue to teach the Bible. I would teach the Bible, generally speaking, by and large, verse by verse. And I would avoid, and I'm, as I'm doing so, uh, I would do so from someone who has convictions about classic covenant theology. We'll talk about what that is uh, and the law gospel distinction. But I would do so without using the loaded terminology. 
by loaded, I mean uh, the kind of terminology that's explosive, the kind of terminology that when people hear a certain label, it causes them to come to wrong conclusions or it causes them to be overreactionary when it comes to emotions and no longer listen to what the Bible is saying. And so when I mean classic covenant theology, uh, what I mean is a commitment to the covenant of works. We'll talk about that in a little bit. A commitment to the covenant of grace, covenant of redemption. And what goes along with covenant of works, covenant of grace would be a commitment to the, the law of God, being good, righteous, and holy, but it's what God requires. And the gospel of God being also good, righteous, and holy, if you will, but it's what God graciously provides in meeting the obligation for righteousness, which comes through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, what we would do is keep teaching the Bible. Don't use the explosive, heated, huge, controversial labels, but teaching it anyway. That, that's been our approach. Even to this very day on a Sunday morning, I'm careful with the labels, and I've been at the same church now since 1998 because I'm always wanting to bring people along. I don't want to be a politician. I'm not trying to trick people, but I want people to see in the text of Scripture itself the realities of law and gospel, the realities of God requiring perfect obedience for justification, and we can't meet the obligation. Adam didn't meet the obligation. It's met only by the Lord Jesus Christ, which we receive freely by faith for our salvation. I'm still committed to that. I'm always wanting to be committed to that, and I would encourage others to do the same thing. So that would be the approach. I would do other things as well. I would do other things such as maybe teach a theology class. Well, that's actually what we do and what we have done. And then when it comes to that super important matter of the doctrine of justification, I would do my best to get people to see how important it is. I would talk about the history of the doctrine. I would talk about the history of the Protestant Reformation, the recovery of this great reality, the, the fact that it is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Galatians, we cannot have the gospel. Uh, we, have, we have damnation if we don't have the true biblical gospel that has to do with Jesus and his perfect work to be received freely only by faith. I, I would emphasize all of those things, and you can get people on board. You can get people to buy in to this important matter. The book of Romans, Romans 2, requires perfect obedience for justification, but we can't do it. Romans chapter 10, the same kind of thing. And before you know it, you've got people, in effect, signing up for the categories you were wanting them to sign up for. And they might now affirm what you know to be classic covenant theology, reformed theology, and they didn't even know it. And I don't think that's a bad way to go. In addition, maybe here's another good idea. Uh, around Reformation time in October, you can do a series on the solas. That's pretty customary. Lots of pastors do that. Uh, and you can really emphasize sola fide when you get to that part. Uh, faith alone, and then you can talk about how important that is, because here's what happens. If you go down, as I like to say, the rabbit hole of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that begs the, ne the next question, because then you stay, say, okay, what's, what's under, what undergirds uh, that? What undergirds that is imputation, the crediting of Christ's righteousness. Well, okay, crediting Christ's righteousness is undergirding justification, sola fide. And then you say, but what is Christ's righteousness? Well, righteous means adherence to law. So it's Christ keeping the law. And now you're talking about the act of obedience of Christ. And guess what? You're talking about 
classic covenant theology. So if you can help people see the, the significance of justification and then you look at what undergirds that reality and what undergirds that reality and what it means, now you have people seeing things for what they, the way they need to be seen. Another piece of advice you could, uh, that I'll offer would be to utilize the best you can authors that are familiar, perhaps that people have a fondness toward, and so you can show them, well, here's this evangelical author that you like, uh, and he affirms uh, the covenant of redemption, the intra-Trinitarian covenant, the eternal intra-Trinitarian covenant, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to redeem the elect through the work of the Son, applied by the power of the Spirit, according to the, the elective purposes of God. Well, you can say, all right, John MacArthur even affirmed the, the pactum. He even affirmed the covenant of redemption. I can find it on the Grace to You website. So that could be helpful. Uh, R.C. Sproul is obviously helpful. Uh, S. Lewis Johnson, let's say you're dealing with people who are old school dispensationalists, maybe of an old time Dallas seminary variety. Well, S. Lewis Johnson's a great one to use there because he talks about the divine purpose and you can find the, the lectures that he did years and years ago. And in effect, what he is teaching is classic covenant theology. And he ends up not being a dispensationalist at the end of his life. Uh, but even during that time when he was uh, working through the issues, he could be helpful because a lot of dispensational kinds of people like S. Lewis Johnson. So I, I, I say play it, play it however you need to play it to try to help people to see what the Bible, what, what's actually there and what's been there all along. Okay, Joshua has another question that is related, and that is also, what would you consider to be the essential categories or core tenets of Reformed theology? How many are there, and in what order would you introduce them, and why law, gospel, covenant theology, etc.? Wow, I almost need to sit down for this question or take another drink of coffee. Essential categories. Well, I'm going to take my cues from others, and they've said that covenant theology is Reformed theology, and Reformed theology is covenant theology. So that's nothing new. That's, that's been said many, many times, and I'm going to say that. They're the same thing. I know some people are going to say, well, I'm Reformed but not covenantal. That, that probably is not in the majority view. It's probably a pretty unique view. So I think they, they go hand in hand. So... It's not enough to say, well, I believe in the five points of Calvinism, and therefore I'm Reformed. Uh, those really aren't to be isolated from the bigger structure of things. It's good to be a five-point Calvinist. I, I commend that. Uh, but that's just part of, of the equation. In addition, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the finished work of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, based upon the, the ultimate authority of Scripture alone, those are all good and important. We can't deny those. We want to affirm those. But there's more to it because even those relate to classic covenant theology. Uh, maybe back to that point of the five points of Calvinism, if you're new to Christian theology or you're new to the pactum, you can find our episode called Questioning Calvinism, and I think you'll find uh, that to be helpful at understanding what the five points are and understanding that they are, in fact, biblical. So I'm taking this approach because I know some people do say, well, I believe in the five points, therefore I'm reformed, or I believe in the five solos, therefore I'm reformed. I, I applaud you for affirming both of those uh, five important realities, but let's now move over to say, actually, to be reformed, you're, gonna, you're going to affirm classic covenant theology. And classic covenant theology is this. It is uh, 
the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, and in addition, the covenant of redemption. So those are the key features. Unfortunately, some people think covenant theology is a millennial view or something like that. No, uh, it's first and foremost, we're dealing, let's say, with, with salvation kinds of issues, if you will. So let's go. Covenant of works. Covenant of works would be that God requires perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. He required that of Adam, who was the, the federal head, the covenantal head, according to Romans chapter 5, of the human race. And he disobeyed, Romans 5, 12 and following, he disobeyed and it led to condemnation for all people. So we're condemned before the court of God. So he failed. He didn't do the right thing. What he needed to do is obey God as required of God, and it would have led the human race, if he would have loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved his neighbor as himself, that's the abbreviation of the law, if he would have done both, or if he would have, he would have led the human race into justification. The human, he would have been declared righteous, he and his posterity, those he represents. That's the covenant of works. You won't find it with a word study, but you will find the data in the Bible, the do this and live reality that Jesus even talked about later. That's the covenant of works. The covenant of grace would have to do with salvation. The, the fact that the, the only way anyone could ever be saved is by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the finished work of Christ alone. Uh, that's at least a simple way to get us started with what we would mean by the covenant of grace. And so there's that in mind. That is inseparable, really, from law and gospel because law is what God requires. Think related to the covenant of works. Gospel is what God graciously provides related to the covenant of grace. So they do go hand in hand. And then we move forward and we talk about the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption meaning that formal agreement, uh, that oath uh, between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit whereas we would have elect sinners saved. So all, and that would be the pactum. So all of those things are important, and I think to have Reformed theology, you have to have covenant theology. To have covenant theology, you have to have Reformed theology, and you are going to end up having law and gospel also. And so I would leave it at that. They're all important. They're all inseparable. But I'm going to be careful about my labels, slow to use my labels. But eventually I'll want to use them because I want Christians to be informed. I want them to know that they're not the first Christians. I want them to know that there is a history to this, these realities. That the history to sola fide, let's say, has to do with covenant theology, covenant of works, covenant of grace, and that many Christians have thought through these issues in the past and worked through these issues in the past. They've used labels that are helpful in the past, and it would be a good idea for us to use these labels also. I hope that's helpful. Uh, and it's exciting, it's encouraging for me to see in the congregation where I'm a pastor, the light bulbs going off, people owning these things, understanding these things, and also even being discerning enough when people say, well, I don't believe in covenant theology. For, for people that I'm with and doing ministry with, for them to realize that perhaps it's naivete, but to realize that at best then and therefore you are going to be, if you reject covenant theology, at best you will be weak on the gospel because you will be weak on the doctrine of justification because for, for us to be declared righteous 
by faith alone in Christ alone in his finished work, there has to be something undergirding that, that, that declaration of God. And that is the actual righteousness of Christ, the actual law-keeping obedience of Christ imputed to the believer by faith. It's not based upon nothing. It's not a divine attribute credited to us. It's the obedience of Jesus as the Apostle Paul says, as the last Adam. This is federal theology, which is simply the the English word taken from the Latin that means covenant theology. So let's make covenant theology great again. Another question. We have a question here from Lou that has to do with law and gospel also. And I think you will find it intriguing if I know you Pactum listeners. Lou says, I found the Pactum recently and have appreciated the format and content of your podcasts. Thank you, Lou. I have also been helped and encouraged by your stress on the law gospel hermeneutic. I do have a question, though. If the law is what God requires and the gospel is what God provides, and that distinction is to be maintained as a hermeneutical or interpretive is what he means, interpretive guide for reading and studying the Bible, is there any sense in which there is room to see that when it comes especially to the third use of the law, which and he means by that, that guiding principle for the, for the believer who's in Christ, the third use of the law that God graciously provides for us in this also. And I want to say, first of all, hats off to you, Lou. I applaud you for working at thinking through the issues because it's one thing to say law gospel hermeneutic. Uh, it's another thing to say, does it actually hold water? Does it actually work when we're working through the text of Scripture? Because if it doesn't, then what good is it? And so thank you for doing that. And I think you're, I also uh, admire the fact and appreciate the fact that you're looking to have clear-cut categories because in so many ways theology is about categories. And so I, I, I want to respond by saying yes, sure, uh, it is true. But the reason it, it is true is because you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, that law of God, it comes to you graciously. And one person put it this way. It reminds me of the, the book, The Morrow of Modern Divinity. I, I don't remember if that's where it's from, but that's the association I make with my mind. Now that you're in Christ, you're united to Christ by faith, there's no longer any condemnation for you. So the law of God and your law-breaking will not, cannot, will never condemn you. So read Romans 5, Romans 8. There's therefore now no condemnation if you're in Christ. Now that law comes to you, and it comes to you, third use of the law, it comes to you from the hand of Jesus, your mediator. It doesn't come to you without a mediator, or it doesn't come to you, some have said, from Moses. It comes to you from a perfect mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and so it comes to you graciously. And I like what you've done here, Lou. You've cited Psalm 119, verse 29, uh, where it says, Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. And Psalm 119, 29. And I think that's written from the perspective of a believer that God graciously teaches you his law. Now, I suppose we could, we could debate about this if we were sitting around uh, having coffee and, and chatting about this. And I guess as an unbeliever, we could say the law comes graciously as far as common grace is concerned. Um, because God doesn't owe us any revelation. He doesn't owe us any new revelation. You could go there. That would be fine. But I think it's probably better and, and more sane, theologically speaking, to say, 
Yeah, a believer. That's why the psalmist says, it's a light unto our path. Oh, it's third use. It's for our encouragement. Uh, it, it, it reminds us of our sin, yes, even as believers. Graciously reminds us of our sin because believers need to remember their need for Christ. But in addition, we've got this great reality that it leads us and guides us. So, well done. That makes my day even reading such a question. Final question for today would be this. From Jonah. My name is Jonah. I'm a youth pastor at Redemption Hill Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. I'm reaching out regarding a soteriological heresy. So, Pactum listeners, that's regarding salvation, referred to as provisionalism that seemingly denies both Arminianism and Calvinism. There seems to be a growing popularity in some churches in this theology in the Seattle area. They want to be biblical, biblicism, and deny any sort of human-made doctrine, hence a denial of sound historical theology. Good job, Jonah, for thinking about this. I'll keep on with your question. The irony is that much of this new doctrine known as provisionism has been developed by a guy named Leighton Flowers, who leads the Soteriology 101. He's gaining more and more traction despite his massive theological errors. That is why I'm now coining the term flowerism. Sounds like he's a Calvinist, and maybe he affirms the tulip. No, he doesn't. I'll keep on with your question. Uh, which, of course, defeats their whole purpose of just being just biblical and not a man-made system. I would love to know if you have ever heard of this or interacted with people who believe this. Jonah, I have heard of it. I am familiar with Leighton Flowers. I've watched some debates. I've watched some of his episodes on YouTube. So I know about Soteriology 101. And really, I think, to make it rather simple, uh, even though he wants to be a biblicist and he wants to say we just believe the Bible, uh, at the same time, I think this provisionism, I may have called it provisionalism, I'm not sure, but provisionism, it's just a niche or niche, however you'd like to say it, form of Arminianism. And I know I've watched Flowers lecture or talk about this matter, and he would say, no, it isn't. But in actuality, it's just a form of Arminianism. And... Uh, there's that. It is what it is. Maybe he's going to say it's not because who wants to be labeled an Arminian, right? <laughs> we don't want to, but really that's what it is. And he says things that simply are not true. He talks about the gospel enlightening everyone. And uh, that, that's, not, that's, that's not a biblical reality. The gospel doesn't enlighten everyone. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. But there's no sense in which somehow there's this prevenient grace uh, and I didn't hear Late Flowers use that verbiage, but I'm going to use it. This prevenient grace where now everyone is kind of restored because of the work of Christ to have the ability to believe. Um, even if Flowers doesn't speak in those terms, it's a similar kind of theology. He talks about the substitutionary work of Jesus. Now, in reality, the substitutionary work of Jesus is historically defined uh, in Protestant th theology as atoning. You don't have the atoning work of Christ without actual atonement. So it's not provisional atonement. If it's a substitutionary, it means he did it in your place. So if it's a substitutionary atonement, it, is not, it cannot be, by definition, provisional. It's actual because he didn't atone potentially for our sins. He didn't potentially propitiate God's wrath and justice. He is the propitiation for our sins. It is an actual propitiation, and to make it potential is to make it what First John doesn't say, 
and to make it potential now, uh, or, or if, he, if he did propitiate the sins of everyone, including Pharaoh, then no one could go to hell because there's a double jeopardy because propitiation had already been made. It simply doesn't work. Uh, and so it's a new styled niche kind of Arminianism. He says other things that aren't helpful either, but let's just, let's also think in these terms. Pactum listeners, also you, Jonah, think in terms of does the Bible ever teach that Jesus is successful in doing what he came to earth to do? The answer is yes, obviously. And then let's build upon that. Does the Bible ever teach that Jesus successfully accomplished a redemption that redeems, an atonement that atones? And the answer is yes. And, and a good text that we really need to grapple with before we try to figure out all of these other, what does the Bible mean by world? What does it mean by all in different texts? Let's at least figure out that there is a text in Scripture that's clear and it's John chapter 10 that teaches that Jesus laid his life down for his sheep. That's in place of substitution. And also in John chapter 10, if you read the whole chapter, you'll find both of these texts that he loses none of them. None of those Jesus laid his life down for will be lost. It cannot happen. And that means that this thing with the label we've uh, given Calvinism, uh, is true. It's true before we ever gave it that label. Maybe just as a quick aside, do go listen to that episode called Questioning Calvinism. But the five points of Calvinism as well for you Arminians who we love and are thankful for and are praying for who are listening, uh, the five points of Calvinism didn't wasn't invented by the Calvinists. It's actually invented by those who oppose Calvinism. And so uh, sometimes people who are Arminian, even if they don't know it and don't like the label, say, yeah, I don't like the five points of Calvinism because, you know, Calvin made it up, which is not true, or the Calvinists made it up. And in actuality, if you go and learn about the, the Synod of Dort and read the Canons of Dort, which are rather remarkable and helpful and insightful, you'll see, no, they're responding to those who had their five points, if you will, of Arminianism. So let's discount latent flowers. Uh, let's help people to understand that the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible is better than the provisional Jesus. He's better than the, uh, the there's an atonement that's better than provisional atonement. There's propitiation of your sins that is better than provisionalism, to coin my verbiage of it. All right. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of The Pactum. I am grateful. I'm encouraged. I hope you are as well. And we'll see you next time on The Pactum. <laughs>